The reading this morning is taken from Acts 2, beginning at verse 22, and can be found on page 1693 of the Church Bibles. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be present with us this morning in this room as we come to these words. We pray that you would be with us as we wrestle with them, as we confront your holiness with our sinfulness and your grace and mercy. Amen. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Those are the words that stand out for me in this passage this week. I want to sort of talk a little bit about some of the background to this, but first of all, I want you to think about how many directions you can remember. What's the maximum number of directions, if you're lost, that you can hold on to? It's about, how many, how many reckons five or six? Nowhere near five or six, is it? Well, how, three, four or five? Three. What's, what's, hands up for three. We could, that's a, you know what? I've got a three-point sermon. That's quite handy. <laughs> that's quite handy. But it's, psychologists reckon that three, possibly four, is the most that you can remember, which makes you think, well, how do I remember my phone number, which is 10 digits long? But what you do is you chunk, don't you? You put bits of information together. You say, these three bits mean this, and these three bits mean this, and those four bits mean that, and that's how you remember a longer thing. That's, uh, that's quite helpful, isn't it? You group it all together. And I know I get confused. I do my phone number in, th- in triplets, and somebody read my phone number back to me the other day in pairs. Oh, no. No, 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 that's not me. <laughs> that's not me at all. Well, how do we put these things together? What's this big story, this big chapter, this big event uh, meaning? I mean, we know, most of us will have read this story for 10, 20, 30, 40, I'll stop there, years. And how is it making sense? How is it coming together in your life? How are these things that were prophesied hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago almost, how are those things taking shape in our lives today. And we know, of course, this, that the opening of this story is about a dramatic scene in a room and it's, it's, it, it's got tongues of fire and the wind and multiple languages and apparent stupor that the onlookers thought the, uh, the apostles would, had been drinking. And we thought, oh gosh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But what Peter does when he addresses the crowd He's explaining the meaning of all these things. He's putting it all together so that the onlookers, the listeners, will be able to say, I get it now. What Joel was talking about was happening now because of these other things that have come together. And our long phone number now makes a bit more sense. So Peter goes on, doesn't he? And let's talk about these, these, these three, these key things. First of all, we see that the prophet Joel foresaw that God would pour out his spirit on all people rather than special individuals who had particular callings. I've always, always struck that it's Joseph who is the first person acknowledged to be full of the spirit when Pharaoh is desperate to understand his tormenting dreams. It's not good, isn't it? But there were special people for particular purposes about God's growing plan. But here we are. A new people is being formed, or rather reformed, because this story, this address, is to the men of Israel, the people of God. And one of the things that we notice Uh, And one of the things that's quite often sort of touted is that the multiple languages 
are about um, restoring or reversing the effects of Babel. And I've certainly heard, I've certainly heard talks about that, where, where in the story of Babel, people wanted to make a name for themselves and build a tower so that they could overthrow God in heaven and take charge for themselves. And God broke this all up by giving them different languages so they couldn't communicate anymore. They couldn't cooperate. They couldn't achieve their goals. And there's something true. There's something to be said about that. But the important thing we notice straight away at the end of Joel's prophecy is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Babel was about making a name for themselves. Pentecost is about making the name of the Lord clear so that people could call on his name and be saved. One of the most important things about this group of people was that the name of the Lord is central, renewed, yes, reformed, not like before, but focused on the work and the name of the Lord. That's really important. Peter focuses them like that. The second thing, Peter reminds them that a figure such as a Messiah Jesus had been foreseen by King David. It's interesting, isn't it, to be read uh, 29 and 30. David is described not as a king, but as a patriarch and as a prophet. Not the, not the phrases or titles that we normally give him, but God had promised David on oath, verse 30, that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Peter is talking to the men of Israel. He's talking about what's happened to them, that this, this Christ has come to them. Look at verse 22. A man did these things amongst you in your midst. And then did not receive the glory due, but instead received questioning about who he was, scoffing at his message, the indignity of his crucifixion and trial. Lawless Gentiles, people who didn't know God at all, brought in to overthrow this pretender king. And yet David had clung to this promise that God would send a Messiah. These people of God, these people of God are people of a promise. They're people who are in part of God's promises. That he has made promises about having a people and being their God. That he would live amongst them and they would be with him and he would be, he would be their God and they would be his people. He has made promises about his affection towards his people. And I wonder how much we are people that hold on to God's promises. When I was very small and even younger, my mother had a little, gave me a little promise box. And it was a tiny little sort of cardboard box. And in each one, in there, were those little scrolls, tiny little scrolls of verses from the scriptures. And they were so small, I had to get them out with a pair of tweezers. Do you remember those? Just two of us, great, three, four, well done, okay. And on each one was just this lovely little reminder of a promise that God had made. And I thought that's fabulous. It's fabulous to sort of have that, uh, that sort of little bit of upbringing where the truths of God for me 
for you were part of who I, my upbringing. They're part of all of our being as the people of God because we're to hold on to those things because he doesn't lie. He doesn't let us down. When Jesus said, I will be with you until the ends of the age, he's there. That's his promise. So we are people of promises. What must it have been like for King David and all the pomp and all of the grandeur that he had enjoyed and all of the shame that he had realized and all of the forgiveness that he had found in God, what must it have meant for him to hold on to the idea, the promise that there would be someone even better, that God would not finish with him? God promised to David that he was not finished with him, but in fact, David would see a descendant on his throne. What a fabulous thing. And why is that? David was somebody who sought the Lord with his heart. His heart was something that could, uh, the Lord wanted. It's important. Because the people were, of course, expecting this king figure. And Peter outlines them, doesn't he? Look, this, this David, who we all revere and we all hope for, he died and is buried. I can show you his tomb. But the one that you've just killed, you can't find his tomb. Or you can't find him in his tomb. He's empty. This anointed one that you've rejected and refused and scorned, he's walking around. He's, he's got up. He's, he's resurrected. He's back. People of the promises of God, they didn't realize just how big or real they would become. And it makes, in our conversation, I suppose it could make the resurrection more central. Something we notice in the book of Acts is that the resurrection becomes quite a central theme. Because that's what we're about, isn't it? That's the ratifying, that's the proof positive of God's promises. Thirdly, Peter states to them that this Jesus was sent by God. He was attested to them. Uh, he was proven by signs and wonders. How many times do we read in the Gospels? They were amazed at the authority of his teaching, that they gasped. Who, who has teaching like this? Who has understanding and wisdom like this? He was, this Jesus was attested to them as a reminder that God hadn't given up on them that they had gone a long time, and now here comes this Messiah. And then what Peter does is he calls them out, doesn't he? Verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. God has proclaimed him Lord and placed him on high. As we looked earlier last year, didn't we, at Philippians, about the, how God honors the Son, places him so that every knee will bow. And Jesus calls them out, doesn't he? Whom you crucified. The promises of God. The person of God in Jesus Christ. The power of God in Jesus Christ to prove who he was. The resurrection to demonstrate his 
who he was and God's vindication of him as saviour, somebody whom God had approved of. And they had rejected them. They had rejected him. And he calls them out on it. He calls them out. He says, this God, this Jesus, you crucified. I wonder what you're like at advice. Not giving it. Everyone wants to give advice. Receiving it. I wonder what you're like about receiving constructive criticism. It doesn't always go well, does it, really? I'll give you an easy example. Think about, for a moment, you're driving, home, you're driving on the way home. You stop at the lights. I don't know, haven't roundabout or something. Somebody gets out of the car, taps on your window, and tells you that your brake light isn't working. How many of you would respond positively to that? About three or four. Okay. Well, a bit more than that. How many of you would be like, what the heck do they think they're doing? Oh, it's just me. It is just me. <laughs> oh, well, the rest of this sermon you don't need to listen to. <laughs> but how do we on it? How honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, how on do we handle stuff? Somebody points out flaws with us. Somebody points out things where we've fallen short. Now it's not just about a brake light. It's about you. How well does that go down? How many of us start to make excuses or defense, become defensive? Oh, you don't, I don't want you to put your hands up on that one. <laughs> or we're, or, Elaine, you'll need more people to pray. <laughs> but we are, aren't we? Our natural response to hearing that there's something wrong with what we've done or who we are or how we do things is not to respond with joy and gladness and an opportunity for learning. Is... <laughs> Is it? This isn't a learning moment for me. This is a moment where I dig my heels in and fight back. But that's not what they do. What fascinates me about this is this, and this is, I think, that this is the work of God. This is the proof that the Spirit is abroad here. The signs and wonders are showing that the, the apostles are the right people to be doing this. God has appointed them to be doing it. But what really clinches it for me is that the people, when they heard this, were cut to the heart. Their hearts were pierced and they were broken hearted. And they said, what shall we do? The idea of that, that, that broken-heartedness is not particularly found in Scripture. It's, maybe there's a reference in the Psalms 109 where, where the psalmist talks about a group of people who are in abject terror of the forthcoming destruction, who someone cares not that they are broken-hearted. Psalm 119. Uh, sorry, 109 verse 16. This thing about being broken-hearted. It's absolutely fascinating. The very seat of their being is the place that they are now laying before God. What shall we do? What shall we do? And that's what God wants, isn't it? In Jesus' ministry, in Mark, have a read of Mark 7 when you go home later, or do it in the center over coffee. Um, in Mark 7, Jesus points out that the heart really is the issue with people. He talks about this people who honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then he describes later in chapter 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile the person. Jesus' primary concern is the heart, and I find it staggering that the people who had rejected him now have their hearts broken by the story of him. And I wonder if that story breaks our hearts today. I wonder if we've become a bit numb to it. I wonder if we've become used to hearing it. And what, what pushed me thinking about this this week is that the, the, the men of Israel, in their brokenheartedness, ask, what shall we do? Not what could we do. Not what would you do. Not even what should we do. What shall we do? And linguistically, that's about intent. Should, wouldn't, shoulda, woulda, coulda is all about possibility. Maybe. It's something I may be able to do. But shall is about intent. It's about allowing yourself to say, I must do this. This is how I must respond. And Peter's response is brilliant, isn't it? Repent, be baptized. Turn from the ways in your life that are not in line with God. An admission of your guilt. Seek forgiveness. Repent. Turn round. Is that a message that we hear or we allow, us, we allow to fall into who we are sometimes? You've got to get it right. can't carry this stuff forever. Don't want to. You weren't meant to. Jesus didn't die so that you had to. Sometimes we carry on with stuff that we don't need to do. And be baptized. Bring who you are, your identity, in line with God. Being baptized is a sign, an outward sign, of the inward work of God. It's a sign of witness that God is at work in you and that you are allowing him to work in you, that his spirit is filling you, directing you, guiding you, helping you. So I find that quite fascinating. Repent and be baptized in response to what shall we do? So what? How, what difference is this going to make this time tomorrow? I've always loved a little Jewish aphorism that a man who gets lost and goes faster doesn't get there any more quickly. He gets lost over a wider area. Without a clear direction, we do the same. Without a clear response, we're prone to doing the same thing. And unless we can address some of the stuff that's going on, we will just keep walking lopsided or driving with one wing mirror blinded until we get eventually to something that we call home. But that's not the work of God, is it? The work of God is to make us his home, the place where he will come. Jesus wanted to change people's hearts so that they would be, we would be with him and we would be with he would be with us and we would be with them the way that they're together and we would be overwhelmed with his grace and his love for us in Jesus Christ but what we tend to do is we hold on to things that kind of snuff out 
stuff. Our hearts become places where that exchange of God's grace and kindnesses and his promises and his forgivenesses don't get far. And it becomes a jumble. And the thing with the Spirit, as I understand it, as I experience it, is that if I'm not dealing with this stuff, then he withdraws. And he withdraws. And in fact, I can quench the very work that God is trying to do in each, in me. And we wonder, don't we, when are we going to see the kingdom break out? When are we going to see this new thing happening? And here's a story about Peter saying, you want to see stuff happening, address this. Address this, and then the stuff happens. And these are the apostles. They've done hard miles with Jesus. They've been through the mill with him, and they've understood. And we need to be the same sorts of people, because what makes a difference, what will make a difference to your day tomorrow will be how the stuff that happens to you engages with who you are, how you respond to it. Are you going to respond in a way that says, well, I'll just do it myself then? Are you going to respond in, it in a way that says, actually, Jesus said there's a better way of doing this, and the me he wants me to be is going to do that instead, to resist those evils, the things that defile us, and be able to be in the world untouched, as it were, untainted, shining, glowing, as examples of God's work in a group of people that he's called to trust him. I wonder how that looks in your relationships, in your, the things you volunteer with, the things you work at, how you handle conflict, how you handle tricky customers, how you deal with financial decisions, all those different things that can bubble to the surface are things that God wants to deal with. And that's, when we get that right, when we allow God, by his Holy Spirit, to take a lead, that's when we become the witnesses to the kingdom, to the people that he's making on earth. Shall we be still? Lord, it's a heart thing. We know that we are frail, that we are easily tempted, angered, disappointed, despairing. We pray that you would write your spirit on us. You would write, he would write words on our hearts. He would remind us of truths that draw us close, that remind us that you would complete your promises, your work in each of us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you come and be amongst us. Fill us. We pray that you would deal tenderly with us. Our fears, our disappointments. We ask in Jesus' name, that you would heal us and fill us, refresh us, renew us, strengthen us, embolden us, speak through us, witness through us and to us that the work of Christ would be made complete in us.
for your glory. Amen.